Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this Daily Journal podcast on one of the most important legal issues being dealt with today, issues involving business interruption insurance in the context of the COVID-19 crisis. If you would like CLE credit for this one-hour podcast, it is easy to obtain through the Daily Journal. If you go to the Daily Journal website, dailyjournal.com, you will see this podcast on that webpage, and right next to it will be a link to a CLE test that you can take electronically, send into the Daily Journal, and you may obtain the one-hour CLE credit for this. This is one hour of two separate hours on this issue. We have already done, and we will post at the same time as this, an hour with policyholder plaintiff's attorneys, Michael Bedard and Ricardo Echevarria at Chernoff Bedard and Echevarria, who presented the plaintiff's arguments and position on the business interruption issues. We have asked the very distinguished defense counsel to present the defense arguments in this one hour. So by listening to both hours, whether you're on the plaintiff's or defendant's side, policyholder or insurer, you will hear the very best arguments presented by counsel on both sides of, of this issue. And we're delighted to have Peter Klee and Mark Feldman from Shepard Mullen, Richter and Hampton with us on this hour. Shepard Mullen has one of the leading insurance defense practices in the country. It has 40 lawyers in its insurance litigation group in five offices in California. And Peter and Mark are both partners in the Shepherd Mullen Office Litigation Group, both in San Diego. Peter Klee's practice is on defending insurance companies and their affiliates. He's handled over a thousand such cases in the last 25 years. His client list and the client list of Shepherd Mullen in this area is basically a list of all leading insurance companies. He's handled numerous jury trials and appeals. He's a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and is the co-author of the Rudder Group's Insurance Litigation Practice Guide, California's leading treatise on insurance law. Mark Feldman is also a partner at Shepard Mullen in the Insurance Litigation Group. He regularly defends insurance companies and their affiliates in individual actions and class actions, bad faith, unfair competition, and other torts. He also has handled many cases in this area over the years in trial and appellate courts and brings his strength along with Peter's to the Shepherd Mullen insurance defense practice. Peter and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It is much appreciated by the Daily Journal and by all our listeners as well. Let me start with a broad question. The questions that we are going to ask today in this hour have been agreed upon by both counsel, both the counsel on the plaintiff side and by Peter and Mark. But before we get to the specific questions that everyone is going to focus on in terms of law and policy, I think there, we all think that there is an important consideration to set the context for this. So the question is, on these business interruption and coverage issues, are there any social or public policies that could impact how the courts analyze the coverage issues we'll be talking about? I'll handle that question, Howard. Uh, I think that there there are extremely unprecedented policy considerations at issue in this particular coverage um, dispute. Uh, a lot of times, uh, some courts will will bend to try to find coverage where perhaps an insurance company did not intend it, and the result of that bending can result in an insurance company ending up covering a loss that 
it never intended to cover when it wrote the policy. There's something very unique about the business interruption claims that relate to the COVID-19, and that is that we are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of losses that were caused by shutdowns relating to the COVID-19 virus. Just compare that, for example, with um, Hurricane Katrina or um, 9-11. Those were massive catastrophes that cost the insurance industry massive amounts of money, billions of dollars, but they were nothing compared to what we're dealing with here. And why is that? That's because those losses, and, and virtually all losses, are tend to be limited in scope geographically. 9-11 was limited to the buildings that were destroyed. Uh, Hurricane Katrina was limited to that region of the country. What we are talking about today when we discuss COVID-19 is a series of losses that span not only the entire country and every state and city and town in that country, but in fact, the entire world. And so we're talking about losses that are so massive that they really can't even be added up. And when I say hundreds of billions of dollars, that's a ridiculously conservative estimate. I mean, it, it could be in the trillions. And if courts were to stretch to find coverage for something like this that, for reasons we can talk about, were never intended to be covered, it will essentially bankrupt and a, a critical segment of society, which is the industry or the portions of the industry that cover these types of losses, because we're not talking about a one-off or even a geographic catastrophe. We're talking about something that the insurance industry was never designed to cover, and if it's held responsible to provide that coverage, it will effectively go out of business. All right. But let's talk about, I think that's an important consideration, and it, it's, it has been part of the discussion, and it's important that we keep it in mind as, as we discuss these issues. But let's talk about whether there is, aside from that consideration, under the business, under the comprehensive general liability and other policies, there is, in fact, business interruption insurance, because, of course, if there were a standard defense, if the courts were to determine that the business interruption insurance either was not available or was limited, that would certainly affect the magnitude of the risk. So let's talk about whether, in fact, in, in usual circumstances, what is going on here and start with the first of our questions. Basically, what is business interruption insurance? Well, and I think as, as you're implicitly indicating, Howard, um, all of these issues really come down to an interpretation of contracts. So what we're really doing is we're looking at contracts and seeing what they say. And obviously, if a contract um, uh, can be interpreted to provide coverage, coverage will be owed. And uh, most, if not all, commercial standard commercial policies do provide coverage for something called business interruption, which is coverage for a loss of business income that occurs as a result of the uh, insured or the policyholder being shut down due to a loss that is covered by the policy. There's also something known as contingent business interruption coverage, which is a little bit different, but that would be a situation where the insured's business is interrupted because one of its, not because it suffered damage or loss of property, but because one of its customers suffered a physical loss or damage to the customer's property. And as a result, 
the business, the insured business, uh, suffered a, a an interruption. Um, that's less common. Um, I think probably the focus today is going to be on the standard business interruption insurance coverage provision. Yes, and I'd like to just to be clear. Let's talk about it almost as a, as, as a hypothetical involving a restaurant, uh, if we can, because there have been, uh, as we all know, many cases already filed on behalf of restaurants uh, that have made a claim that they, a variety of claims, some have simply said because of the virus, we have no customers and therefore we're covered. Some have said that people are ordered being sheltered in place and they can't come. Some have said there have been government orders that we close. But in any case, the business has gone away for the restaurant, and the business makes a claim under the business interruption insurance. You mentioned the language of the policy. What is the clause, the basic clause, the at-risk or stated peril clause that is involved here uh, in these policies? Mark? I, I could give you a, a standard provision that's involved. Uh, you're talking about the business interruption yes, clause? Yes, yes. Uh, standard provision, and, I, and I'll quote it, it would say that, uh, quote, we will pay for the actual loss of business income you sustain due to the necessary suspension of your operations during the period of restoration. The suspension must be caused by direct physical loss of or damage to property. That's, that's the operative language. And that is language also in the context of what's called an all-risk coverage. There is separate language that all risks are covered. Is that correct? Yes, there are there are there are two types of policies, uh, all risk and stated peril policies, and and you're correct. That would be the language that you would typically find in an all risk policy. So, but you talked about this being a contract, uh, which it is. It's interpretation of the contract. I think it's important to note, and we did in in the in the other hour of the broadcast as well. This the interpretation of the contract is a purely legal issue. The the issues under legal coverage that we're going to be talking about are issues that will be decided by courts and judges interpreting language of the contract. And because it, it's a judicial decision, a legal decision, uh, there'll be no deference if there are appeals taken. There'll be de novo appeals, either in the inter intermediate appellate courts or in the Supreme Court. And so we're talking about here, in terms of the large element of risk that you talked about, interpretations which will be made by judges and not by juries. Am, am I correct on that? That's correct, Howard. It would be judges, not juries, who are charged with interpreting the contract insurance policy. And isn't the standard rule here, I think what is often raised, since you're talking about a contractual interpretation, that the insurance companies were the drafters of these policies, and in the case of any ambiguity, is there not the stand is there a standard rule that the contract will be interpreted against the drafter and that rule often applied, especially in the insurance context? Well, I guess the answer to that, Howard, is yes and no. You do get to a point where that rule of construing a contract against the drafter might apply, but that comes at the end of an analysis. And if you apply the rules that precede it, you most likely will never get to that point. Let me explain. The first rule, the primary rule in interpreting an insurance policy is the rule that's applied to any contract. It's not special because it's an insurance policy. And that primary rule is you look to the plain language of the contract. You look at the words and the phrases and you give them the meaning that an ordinary person would, you interpret them in context by looking at everything in the policy together. And 
if the plain words and language of the contract are clear, you give it the meaning that the plain words indicate. And that may favor the insurance company. It may favor the insured. You just interpret the words based on their plain meaning. You mentioned ambiguity. And you might, that that is an issue. But the other rule is that courts don't strain to find ambiguity. In other words, courts don't look to find ambiguity where it doesn't really exist. In order for something to be ambiguous, a word or a phrase has to have more than one reasonable meaning. If it doesn't have more than one reasonable meaning, if there's only one reasonable way of interpreting it, there's no ambiguity. And that takes us, I think, to the critical language that's already mentioned in terms of the all risk and, and the uh, business interruption coverage, which is in policies, the requirement for a f- for physical loss or damage to bring about the business interruption coverage. Is that the primary language here that has to be interpreted in terms of whether the coverage exists? Well, depending on what provisions exist in the policy, this may end up being the primary language. It is certainly critical language, uh, no matter what other provisions exist, such as uh, exclusions that could apply. But this is the this is the coverage provision. And so you do start with an analysis of whether it falls within this coverage language before you would get to the issue of whether potential exclusions or other limitations apply. Yeah, that's a very important point of analysis. Let's first talk about it. So I think you're saying the analysis here provides what, what are the, what's the coverage language. And if you then come within the coverage language, then turn to the exclusion. But the issue of physical loss or damage goes to whether there's coverage. Is, is, is that, that's, that's how we start the analysis, isn't it? That's correct. And I think that is, uh, will ultimately be perhaps the most significant battle that will be waged over the applicability of coverage to the coronavirus pandemic. And what is your basic position, taking the restaurant example, for example, so that we talk about an assumed set of facts, restaurant that was open, this happens. Sure. Has there been, has the requirement of loss or damage been met? Uh, Assuming there's no, yeah, please go ahead. Yes. (laughs) I'm sorry. I didn't mean to speak. No, no, go ahead. This is your, yes. This is what you would do. The first thing you would you would focus on in this particular provision, because of the nature of the loss, is was there a physical loss of property? Meaning, for example, was the property destroyed or was it stolen? Um, no, it doesn't appear that it would be. Is there damage to property? Meaning, was the property's condition altered as a result of the virus? And the answer is. Probably no, but I mean, it it depends. You have to evaluate every loss independently. So um, if if the reason that the business was interrupted and shut down was because the property on that site was contaminated, then putting aside other coverage limitations that might exist in the policy, there might be coverage, or at least you might get around the issue of whether there's damage uh, to the property, but then you have some interesting questions here, which is, well, uh, what is a- what is actual ca- contamination, or to what extent should there be actual contamination in order for there to be coverage? For example, um, if you can just show that there's probably some molecules that are floating around out there, and be- just because generally the- there's a-, a-, a good possibility that some molecules must be sitting somewhere on some surface, is that enough? Um, probably not. Um, this, this is an area that case law will have to explore and decide, but 
um, it is most likely that the uh, the contamination would actually have to physically manifest in some form or fact. Let's uh, consider this in in the situation of a restaurant uh, that has been closed uh, for any one of a number of reasons in the midst of this of this crisis. Customers go away. There've been business interruption. How do you deal with the loss? analysis there, because the argument is made that simply because of the existence of the virus or an order closing the restaurant as a non-essential business, there has been a loss of the property. Well, the, the first thing you'd want to do is you'd want to make sure that you don't treat all claims alike. So in the example you gave, it would really depend on the circumstances with respect to whether or not the policyholder could overcome this uh, requirement to fall within the scope of coverage. So, for example, if the restaurant was shut down because it was discovered that there were in, that the virus was on the property itself, and that as a result of the virus being on the property, the restaurant had to shut down to go through an extensive cleaning to eliminate the virus, then that actually would come closer to qualifying for um, direct physical loss of or damage to property because there actually was something on the property. And then that would get into the issue of, well, how much contamination is enough to trigger coverage? And you would, for example, it's just the mere fact that there are molecules of the virus floating around that theoretically may be on the property enough. And the answer is probably not. You probably Peter, have to show. Yes. Yeah, but I'm, I apologize for interrupting you because I do think the contamination that if you show a physical impact that you have a different sort of analysis. But let me make the, the, the hypothetical clearer. Suppose there's no physical impact or at least no, no provable, whatever people think, there's no provable physical impact through the existence of, of the virus molecules. But there was a government order, not just that people shelter in place, but there was a list of non-essential businesses, an an executive order issued under uh, the emergency powers of the executive, as we've seen in California, that basically said this restaurant was a non-essential, didn't specifically say this restaurant, but that restaurants were non-essential businesses and had to close down to deal with the pandemic. And so that is the loss of use. Is there a difference right. between use, focusing on the word loss in that case, even where there may have been no physical damage? Yes, there's a very big difference because in that scenario, it'll be much more difficult for the business to demonstrate an entitlement to coverage because in the absence of any physical loss of the property or damage to the property, there should not be coverage for business interruption. And and that's the critical issue. And that's what we have here. Um, Most businesses, the vast majority of businesses, were shut down or interrupted, not because they actually suffered contamination, but because of a government order that was done prophylactically as a result of the pandemic. So that is the the biggest hurdle. um, Well, one of two biggest hurdles that policyholders will face in trying to establish coverage because uh, the, the mere fact that the business was shut down does not mean that the, the actual property itself was lost or damaged or destroyed. It just means that 
the government shut it down. And but so that's, the, ar- the argument that's made, and again, but, I'm, I'm pressing you on it for the sake of really being able to fully uh, in, to th- think through the issue. It all depends, the argument is made, on what physical loss means. Physical loss can mean damage, that is, the word physical is emphasized in the loss, or you can emphasize the noun, loss, and physical loss amounts to loss of use, that if you physically cannot use the property, that amounts to a loss. And are there not some policies in the this make a difference where the language is physical loss of or damage to? Is the use of the word of in some policies an important consideration here? I think you've identified what the... Mark, do you want to address that? Go ahead. Yeah, you you raised an important point, Howard, and you asked about loss of use. And I understand people are making an argument about loss of use, but, but there's a couple things here that are important to clarify. And the first is the business interruption coverage is part of the first party coverage in a policy. It, it, it pays the policyholder for losses that the policyholder himself suffers, as opposed to third party coverage, which is when an insurance policy defends or indemnifies the policyholder when some third party sues that policyholder for, for some reason for a tort. Now, the business interruption coverage talks about direct physical loss of or damage to property. It does not mention anything about loss of use. Loss of use as a term comes up in the third party part of a policy where the insurance company promises to defend or indemnify a policyholder against third party claims or bodily injury or property damage. In that context, property damage is defined to include loss of use. But that loss of use concept does not come into play under the first party business interruption coverage. And so that's why you have to look at the actual language that's in that part of the policy, which is direct physical loss or damage to the property. And courts interpret that according to those words, plain meaning, which is there has to be some physical alteration of the property itself. There are some courts that outside of California that have interpreted it more broadly. But in California, the courts have been pretty clear that this language, the requirement that the loss be physical, means that it excludes, and I'm quoting from a case, any losses that are intangible or incorporeal. And so they preclude any claim where the insured merely suffered a detrimental economic impact unaccompanied by a distinct demonstrable physical alteration of the property. And that's what the California Court of Appeal has said that this physical loss means. Well, tell me about the cases outside California. It's a pretty straightforward standard. What about the cases? Are there cases outside of California that you think have interpreted the physical loss language differently and provided business interruption insurance when there was no damage? To a certain degree. I would say that California has the most direct and perhaps the highest bar, which is it has to be a physical alteration of the policy. I would say the next level would be some cases that interpret the physical loss of or damage to to mean that you don't actually have to see an alteration in, in, in the nature of the policy, but there is something that has happened because, for example, smoke damage or fumes. And in those situations, the property itself hasn't been altered. It hasn't changed, but there's something in it that is noticeable or, or tangible itself. 
even if the property hasn't changed. What about fumes outside? Suppose there were a fire and there were fumes that uh, something burned down and it suddenly was dangerous because it burned down next to a uh, next to a restaurant. So actual access was barred for a significant period of time until repairs were made. Even would that not be covered by the physical loss of the uh, property? Well, I don't think it would be in California because it has to be a physical alteration to the property of the insured itself. And and the, the example you described does not show that there's any physical change to the property of the insured. Okay. However, on the what I would call the very liberal end of the spectrum, there are probably some jurisdictions, a few outside of California, who would who who would consider that to be physical loss or damage to the property, even though that probably doesn't comport with the literal uh, interpretation of, of of those words. So, tell me what is going to happen here on this issue because this is a this is a pure legal issue. The trial courts will decide it first. The policyholders will certainly cite any ambiguity in the California cases. But beside that, they'll cite the cases outside California, which have prevented, uh, which have provided some relief uh, when some external event prevents uh, use of the property, interpreting the loss as as loss of use in this case. So it'll be decided by the trial court. Uh, however, the trial court decides it. It certainly will go up to the district court of appeal. And ultimately, there will be a petition uh, for a hearing in the Supreme Court of California uh, on this specific legal issue. What does the, what do the words physical loss in the policy mean? And the odds are, given the importance of this, what is your would you not estimate the Supreme Court of California is likely to grant a petition for hearing on on this issue or not? I think it depends in part on what happens in the appellate courts if the appellate courts uniformly apply a particular approach and there's not a disparity between appellate courts, the Supreme Court may feel that it doesn't need to weigh in. So I think it depends on how the legal issue develops in the court system. And so we're looking, let's talk practically. I mean, you've talked about enormous losses and uncertainty. I want to add something here. Uh, Because this is a pure legal issue, and because the resolution of this issue really is important for the functioning of businesses' risk uh, and then the whole result of the cases, is there a way that this could be fast-tracked uh, in trial courts? Partial summary judgment, for example, brought purely on the legal issue with uh, and then ap- appealed on an expeditious basis. Uh, there, there would be an enormous interest in having this decided quickly, wouldn't there? Well... I I would defer to an appellate specialist on that question. However, I will tell you that ordinarily the courts don't allow that type of approach. They they want to have complete resolution of a case. So in order to fast track it, the the party that lost at the trial court level would have to lay down on all the other issues and basically just concede them so that there was an actual final judgment in the case. And, And then that would um, that's something that could happen. But I, but I mean, these are things that could be fast-tracked simply because a summary judgment motion was granted um, before there ever was a trial. Yeah. And then that immediately goes up on appeal, or if it were denied, it could go up on a writ. And so you could get relatively quick relief, d- depending on the circumstances. Because we're looking at it, uh, given the normal calendars, we're looking at a period of substantial uncertainty here. 
uh, even putting aside the trial court closures uh, with the delay they encompass, we're really looking at a, at a, at a multi-year period of, of uncertainty over this issue that affects large numbers of businesses. That's, that's why I think the procedural issue may be important. But to move on, let's move on beyond the physical. We've spoken about the coverage issues. Uh, we've talked about the importance of the physical loss or, or, or damage provision and coverage. Let's move to some of the other issues, to the exclusion issues. One of the things that's involved here in a lot of policies is what's called a virus exclusion. Can, can you talk about the application of the virus exclusion uh, in, in this area? I'll talk about that, sure. The It's interesting to note how this exclusion uh, came about, and it came about because um, just giving you the perspective of the insurance industry, the industry never felt that it was intending to cover pandemic-related losses. Um, and after the SARS pandemic, uh, where a lot of uh, policyholders were making coverage arguments to try to get coverage for uh, the, pan- the results of the pandemic, the standard property forms were revised and tightened, and they I- expressly drafted the so-called virus exclusion, which excludes coverage for viruses and communicable or infectious diseases in order to make it crystal clear that these types of losses were not covered because they were not, the insurance companies were not charging premiums that would need to be charged in order to uh, be willing to take on that risk. And so the exclusion that they drafted, it's a very broad exclusion. And that's, uh, and it presents a, a very significant barrier to coverage for policyholders who have that exclusion in the policy. Please. Remember that, again, policy language governs. There are policies that don't have the virus exclusion, but those that do uh, are going to present significant hurdles uh, for coverage for the businesses that uh, have uh, interruption coverage. Because the exclusion, uh, I'll just give you an example of the language that is used. It's This is a quote, we will not pay for loss or damage caused by or resulting from any virus, bacterium, or other microorganism. Um, and it goes on. Uh, but so it's not just that the loss has to be caused by the virus itself, but a loss that results from any virus is also excluded, at least under the, the plain reading of that type of exclusion. Let me ask you a couple of questions about this. First of all, you've mentioned several times that the insurance companies didn't intend to have this coverage, but that is not is that a relevant legal consideration in the court's interpretation of the language? Well, um, I think I think if the insurance company intended to provide coverage, the court would find that relevant in deciding whether coverage was owed, even if the language did not comport with the insurance company's intention. But I mean, I, I, you're correct that just because an insurance company did not intend to do something does not mean that under the laws of policy interpretation, it may not ultimately be required to do something. I, I agree with you. And you've mentioned that there are policies, after SARS especially, that contain the virus exclusion. But let's, um, for a moment, if there are policies that don't have the virus exclusion, does the use of the virus exclusion in certain other policies confirm that this was a, 
to be covered because an exclusion appears to have been necessary. Therefore, the argument will be made, since it's in some other policies, but not in this, that certainly in those policies that don't have the virus exclusion, the very presence of that exclusion in other policies mean that there's coverage in, in, in the policies that don't have the exclusion. I don't think that's an intellectually sound argument. And, and the, I mean, I know you're just proposing it. I'm not saying it's your argument, but it, it's oh, I've not been accused. Sound. I've, I've been accused of many worse things than <laughs> making arguments that are not intellectually sad. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't mean to be disparaging uh, or pejorative, yeah. but I'm just saying that the the that argument presumes that any time there's language that either is more clear or simply reinforces um, coverage limitations that already exist, that somehow that means that any policy that didn't have that language somehow is ambiguous and therefore owes coverage. And that's really not the way that the courts approach it. There are times when the existence of clarifying language can be used against an insurance company, but that's typically when there the policy is deemed to be ambiguous for the reasons that Mark outlined earlier. But if if there is no ambiguity, then you don't start looking to see if there if if there could be other language that would have clarified that ambiguity. Now the argument is also but made. You have to remember, Mark. Please sorry, go ahead. You have to remember, Howard, that sometimes insurance companies add provisions or make clarifications not because they think that the policy was previously ambiguous, but simply to avoid litigation because they were sued and they think they can avoid litigation by making the policy even more clear than it had been before. Yes. Uh, the argue, There's a famous argument before the California Supreme Court in the old days involving uh, liability when there, was a, when, when there was a charitable immunity exclusion for hospitals. And in argument Supreme Court of California, one of the justices actually asked counsel for the charity whether the counsel had advised the client to obtain insurance for it. And, and the client and the, the counsel said, yes, the counsel had advised that insurance be obtained. And when the justice asked why, the counsel, though not using the exact words, basically said, because we knew too much to completely trust this court. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you, though, another argument involving the virus exclusion. The argument is made around the law in California about concurrent causes. Argument is made that even though there may be a virus exclusion, if the existence of the pandemic led to a government order for essentially a business shutdown, that that's a concurrent cause, quite separate from the pandemic. It was the government order that caused the shutdown. And that under the laws of concurrent causes in interpreting these policies, that if that if that cause itself was a substantial cause of the loss, that that can be looked to uh, to obtain coverage in these cases. Have you come across that argument in terms of dealing with these cases? I yes, I, I know that that argument is being advanced by the the insurance council and 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 there's a lot of problems with the argument though uh and reasons why i don't think it would ultimately prevail do you want me to walk you through those yes because i think given the existence of virus exclusion in so many of these policies that this argument uh, being made by policyholders council is going to be a critical part of how these cases turn out okay so to understand why the argument probably won't prevail at the end of the day. You have to understand, first of all, the, the concurrent causation doctrine. So, um, And we're dealing with first-party policies. And so w- the question when, you, when it comes to concurrent causation arises when a loss is caused by multiple causes, 
some of which are covered and some of which are uncovered. And the question is, okay, if some of the causes are covered and some are uncovered, is there coverage? And so you then go to the so-called concurrent causation doctrine or uh, and in, so in California and, and in most states, in order for you to consider separate causes, first of all, each of those separate causes has to independently um, be able to actually cause the loss at issue. So you wouldn't consider a cause that is completely dependent on the occurrence of an uncovered event. So it would have to be something that independently by itself um, could occur. And then you go through the analysis, and in California, um, the California Supreme Court has said that you look to determine which of the various causes is the efficient proximate cause, which also has been known as the predominant cause or the most important cause, and then that cause will determine whether there is or is not coverage. And so how does that analysis come into play here? Because here, I think the policyholders want to argue that the government shutdown orders are a concurrent cause, and they would argue they're the most important cause of the business income losses. But the problems with that, which I've already alluded to, is that first of all, you'd have to show that the shutdown order is actually a cause of the loss, and, and you actually uh, to start out by going back to the coverage provision. So you'd have to show that, number one, did the government shutdown cause a physical loss of or damage to property? So if you can't get past that coverage language of physical loss of or damage to property, it doesn't matter whether there are concurrent causes. So you'd have to show that the government shutdown actually caused a loss of property or damage to property. We've already discussed that, so I won't go over that again. But yeah, that, that but, pardon, but pardon me interrupting. Problem. I think the important, the way to approach this argument to separate out the concurrent cause issue from the physical loss or damage issue, I think that's right. The physical loss or damage requirement for coverage may still be there. But the question we're dealing with here is right. the applicability of the virus exclusion. So let's assume for the sake of the concurrent cause argument that the physical loss requirement has been met. Uh, okay. Let's just make that assumption. And so the yeah, issue- Yeah, let's do that. It, so the so issue we get pure, past the physical loss issue. Get the past. So the issue really is, given the government shutdown order and a virus exclusion, is the government shutdown order, can it be argued, is the efficient cause of what has occurred and therefore would be covered? So you'd have two more steps that you'd have to analyze in order to- uh, be able to prevail on that. First, you'd have to show that the shutdown order was itself an independent and distinct peril that could have occurred um, and, and resulted in the damage even in the absence of the virus. Now, the insurance industry will argue that, well, no, the, the very reason that the shutdown order exists is because of the virus. It's not a separate, it's not like the government just independently would tell people to shut down their businesses for no reason other than the government wanted to exercise its authority. So that would be one potential problem that the um, the business owners would face. And then even if they were able to get by that, they would still have to show that the government shutdown order was, in fact, the predominant cause of the loss. And they would face a very strong argument that really 
the cause of the shutdown or the cause of the business interruption ultimately was the virus because the virus was the reason for the shutdown. It was the origin of of the problem in the first place. And therefore, the the fact that there was a shutdown was not actually the predominant cause. Let, let me give you an example of, of a concurrent causation scenario that could arise in which I think there could be coverage to, to contrast with what I'm saying. So for example, why not, let's suppose that as a result of the government shutdown, um, the public rioted. Um, we've seen, uh, we haven't seen riots, fortunately, but we've seen um, unhappy people out on the street. And let's say that in, during the course of rioting, they vandalized or destroyed property and that that caused the business to have to shut down and the business would then make a claim for business interruption, uh, interruption coverage. Well, in that scenario, you have multiple potential causes of the loss. You've got the virus, you've got the government shutdown, you've got the rioting, and then you've got the actual vandalism and destru destruction of the property that resulted in the property being shut down for repairs. In that scenario, you have a much stronger argument on behalf of the policyholder that the actual predominant cause of the loss was not the virus, it was not the shutdown, it was the fact that somebody actually set fire to the building during the riot. And assuming there aren't any other exclusions that would apply, um, a very strong argument could be made that that type of loss was covered even though it arose indirectly out of the virus. But once again, so if, I, if, you, I, if, if you lead, if it leads up to a physical loss, I think it puts it, regardless of how it's framed, in a different context. Suppose the rioting occurs, and because of the rioting, uh, which goes on for a period of time, the restaurant has to close down. It, the restaurant says that's an independent cause. I mean, what you're talking about in the way you're describing it, the argument will be made that essentially you're ending the concurrent cause argument by saying that you look to the initial cause, and if the concurrent cause is connected to the initial cause, it can't be deemed to be a concurrent cause. Is that essentially what you're arguing? Going back to the old language of what is the triggering cause? Am I arguing that, that if there can be some connection between a cause, that it if it all stems back to the virus, that there would be no coverage? Yes. Is that essentially that's, what you're arguing? Well, I, I think that's an argument that the industry can make. Um, I, I do think, though, that you would have to you'd have to look at all the circumstances independently, and you, you couldn't just take a broad stroke like that and say, well, anything that that indirectly stems from the virus is somehow not going to be covered. I, I think that's that is an overbroad characterization that I don't think would be appropriate. I think you just have to look at the specific facts of each loss and then try to do an analysis. I will tell you the concurrent causation uh, doctrine and is extremely complicated, yes. convoluted, and it's very challenging for even people that specialize in this area to, to navigate through uh, on both sides. So now, I, I cannot, uh, I, I would never make that overstate. Is the issue of concurrent cause, which is a factual issue, does that issue go to the jury with a jury with a jury causation instruction? If there's an issue of fact that needs to be decided in order to determine whether there's coverage, then that issue of fact should go to the jury. Right. So specifically in the case we're talking about, we have the pandemic 
and the restaurant was closed following a government order, deeming it a non-essential business and ordering it to close, is the issue of whether that was a concurrent cause for the sake of liability. Does that issue go to the jury to be determined with the standard jury instruction on causation? Well, this is here's the question. You know, that's a, that's a good question. It's like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. The, the reality is that if the facts that that regarding that issue are not in dispute, in other words, there's no dispute about what happened and what events and what sequence of events occurred that resulted in the shutdown, then it might be an issue for the court to decide because the facts are not in dispute and the question is, what is the legal result of those facts? On the other hand, if there was a dispute, you had, for example, two witnesses, two experts, and they were disagreeing on some of those foundational facts, that would be something that would go to a jury. Does does that clarify the issue? Oh, it does. And I think the reason it's important to raise, I think, because uh, would you say the risk to the risk to insurers here uh, is greater to the extent issues go to a jury than if they're simply decided by the judge? Uh, I think that uh, that is conventional wisdom, but I don't subscribe to it, um, and I think it depends on the venue, the jury, and who the judge is. I think that there are. Um, I think it, it can be true, but it is not always true. Not always true, but again, I not to put you on the spot on broad overgeneralizations, but by and large, uh, in California, is it true that defendants, by and large, would rather not have jury trials over highly emotional issues like this? I'm going to give you my answer. I have never waived a jury in my entire career, and this is all I do. So I, that should answer that question. I will, but like I said, conventional wisdom is that insurance companies would rather be in front of judges than juries. I will always take a ju- jury over a judge, but that's just my... Peter, I'll just make a personal comment. I think the fact that as a defense lawyer, you have never waived a jury says as much as can be said about your skills and ability as a lawyer. Uh, and that is just, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to say that because that just says an enormous amount about how you approach the law and, and, and how you approach uh, these issues. There's one other uh, clause that came into play in the discussion here as we talk about the context of the government shutdown, which is the additional or special coverage for incidents involving civil or military authority. Uh, How does that play into whether there might be coverage here? And what is that coverage? It it typically, it it does come into play, but it doesn't change the analysis very much because in in a sense, you have to go through the same steps that you do um, that we've talked about before, because typically a civil authority coverage will say, when there is a covered cause of loss that causes damage to property other than the insurance property, um, you know, we will pay for loss of income if the civil authority prohibits access to your property. So you still have to engage in the analysis of, well, 
was there really physical damage to the other person's property that prevented access that to your property because the government issued an order. So for example, if, the, if you owned a restaurant and the, the, the government said there's a fire nearby at a factory and, 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 and toxic fumes are being emitted, you can't go within three blocks of the factory and your, your restaurant loses business, that might be a situation where there was physical damage to a neighboring property and the government ordered a shutdown that affected your property and there might be coverage. But here, if the government simply said, we're worried about the spread of a virus, and therefore we are ordering all restaurants in Los Angeles to be closed, that would not necessarily involve damage to neighboring property, and there probably would not be coverage. Yeah. Let me ask you, since we've been talking about business interruption in terms of the economic losses, what are the losses, assuming a, a policyholder got over the issues of coverage and was not a, not uh, bound by an exclusion. What are the losses that would be covered under business interruption insurance? It's typically the net income of the business. So policies use some specialized language, but they look at revenue and then they minus expense, and it is essentially the net income that the policyholder lost during the period that there's coverage. And um, and an important an important important caveat to that is that you know the policyholder actually has to be making income and if you're if you're a startup business for example or even a startup restaurant where you've invested a lot um, in in your plant and your equipment and your kitchen and you're planning and you've been open for a week and you haven't really made any money yet I think under the typical policy provision you could not recover losses simply because you anticipated earning a certain amount of money per week, you actually have to, to demonstrate that you had a positive income flow and that that positive income flow stopped um, because of the covered loss. So it must be income, even if what had happened, say, a business was just slightly underwater uh, in terms of its of its income, however income is calculated, but that the business interruption resulted in much greater losses than were, than were being incurred while it was open. The additional losses would not be covered under the business interruption coverage? It depends on the policy and, and the method of computation that the policy uses, so it, it's hard to generalize. It is possible, depending on the policy language, that if, if they do it as a expense over um, revenue type of analysis, that you could have some of your losses mitigated by the business interruption coverage, but I don't think that typically would be the case. And is there any calculation involved of what the damage beyond the period of the closure is caused if a policyholder argues, suppose they had income and lost the income and said, look, this is going to have a longer term effect than the close down because even when I open, there's a ramp up, there's an impact. Are, is that taken into account as well or is that outside the the coverage uh, for business interruption? I think under most policies, it would be difficult to make that argument. Every policy could differ, but it's typically a defined period of time. If you look at it otherwise, it, it, it could, you know, someone could say that it, it impacted the business and now people don't ever want to go to restaurants in the same extent that they used to because they're, they're just generally more reluctant. And so therefore, my business will have a 25% decrease forever. And I don't think typical policies would cover that. Well, let's add one other. We've talked so much about what's excluded. Are there, for those who may have purchased it, 
We've talked about what's been covered, what are exclusions, uh, and what, what the recovery amount might be. But are there, have there been available and might people have coverage specifically for communicable diseases, which would deal with so many of the issues that we've talked about? There is a chance that people could have policies with that coverage. It does not typically come with business interruption coverage. It's a special endorsement that a policyholder would have to ask for, purchase for, and, and pay an additional premium for. But if, if the policyholder had that endorsement, it would provide broader coverage because it typically would not require direct loss or direct physical loss mm-hmm. or damage to property under the coverage side, and it would not have the virus exclusion on the exclusion side of things. I think I, I want to thank both of you uh, for this, but also I, w- I want to say that this discussion, the, this issue of business interruption insurance, I think we've had with the hour that we previously did w- with plaintiffs' counsel, with this hour uh, with Peter Clee and Mark Feldman, you have heard the arguments that will be advanced by leading counsel in, in these cases. There is a great deal more material available on business interruption insurance. There is a great deal more available in the in the Daily Journal itself. Uh, there, there have been articles by the people we've, we've spoken to on the issue. There also is a treasure trove of columns and news reports on the issues involving business interruption insurance. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you have access to all of that, not just the current articles, but also you can bookmark, you can search for everything that's been published in the Daily Journal. You can bookmark and save that. If you're a subscriber, you have at your disposal an enormous amount of material written about this in the Daily Journal. If you're not a subscriber and you're listening to this podcast outside the paywall as you can on dailyjournal.com, on that same website, if you'd like to see those materials, there is a subscribe button in the upper right-hand corner. And by linking to that subscribe button, you'll have the opportunity to subscribe to the Daily Journal and to have access to all that material. But what we've heard today... Uh, for the insurance companies on the defense side from Peter Klee and Mark Feldman is a review of the arguments that will be presented, will be argued in many courts, and we're indebted and thank both Peter and Mark for taking the time to help us, to help those of you who've listened, and really through this podcast to help the entire bar and the profession deal with this very complex issue. Peter and Mark, I can't thank you enough, and the audience is equally grateful. Thank you so much.